Hello, friends. I'm your Vitamita Benjamin girl. Are you tired, run down, listless? Do you poop out at parties? <laughs> Are you unpopular? The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Lucy Day, and we will be spelling that out over the balance of this hour. Glad to have you with us. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and that is only because we rely on the tech-savvy and the glittering personality of a guy who should, who should have his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Bad boy Benny Mathers on the board. I think that would be appropriate. Uh, You're a star among uh, stars uh, in the radio uh, firmament, my friend. Oh, uh, 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 Matt Mitchell, you've got some splatting to do. <laughs> <laughs> I would love a star. The biggest one. All right. And your hands and feet, they're right in cement. Too. I don't think there'd be enough room. The star would be too big. <laughs> <laughs> that would be incredible. We are in a happy mood today. We are. And who wasn't happy back in the day when starting 70 years ago tonight, there was the premiere and it would have a long, long reach in the way television was viewed and produced and appreciated. It was the debut of I Love Lucy on CBS. And what an extraordinary tale is behind all of that. We also have the opportunity today to talk to a guy I regard as a friend. He's one of those friends, Suzanne, that we just have yet to meet, even though we can see him on Zoom here. Right. Yet to meet. I'm talking about Jeffrey Mark. Let me go ahead and give him his mad props, and we will jump into this hour-long celebration of all things Lucille Ball, and of course, with proper appreciation of Desi Arnaz, who was a genius in his way, a very forward-thinking man and the people who were in their orbit, right there in Hollywood, which in itself is a tale, how they wound up being in Hollywood. But Jeffrey will tell us all about that. Jeffrey Mark has been called a walking encyclopedia of show business history. Honestly, you can't stump, stump the guy when you start talking about Lucy, look out. He, he is, he has the compendium in his cranium. Jeffrey is a singer and stand-up comedian in nightclubs and cabarets and an off-Broadway veteran as well. He's hosted radio series, written comedy, and now writes and produces documentaries and reality shows for cable television. Jeffrey Mark also has written three best-selling books. Yes, one devoted to Lucille Ball, also a book on Ella Fitzgerald, and one on Ethel Merman. Our special thanks to my buddy Gary Allen for recommending Jeffrey to us in the first place. How many times has Jeffrey Mark been on our show now? Today's number three. Number three. This year. We just met him this year, and, and we have invited him back three times because what he knows is so fascinating about classic television and Hollywood, and we just love talking with him. And today we're going to love talking with him about I Love Lucy. In an early conversation I had with Jeffrey Mark, he assured me it's not a case of what he doesn't know about Hollywood, classic Hollywood history. And of course, uh, Lucy, what he doesn't know, it's not that it isn't worth knowing. It's that if he doesn't know it, it didn't happen. Uh. <laughs> there he is, a star right. among stars. And we're always glad to have him with us. Jeffrey Mark, welcome to Manson Mitchell again. 
This guy sounds fascinating. I can't wait to hear what he's going to say. Beautiful. Well, and the crowd is responding. The crowd's going wild. Beautiful. Uh, The book, the book, the Lucy book, A Complete Guide to Her Five Decades on Television is a masterwork. Jeffrey Mark, we're so proud to know you and to be able to tap into that amazing reservoir you have about the knowledge of Lucy, yes, today, but your appreciation of classic Hollywood is unparalleled. I should ask you just for starters, what drew you into that wonderful vortex of Tinseltown? That wonderful vortex of Tinseltown. I think it was part how I was born and part being a baby boomer who lived in New York City mm. at a time when they had seven channels to fill time every day. So they played constantly classic old movies, classic silent movies, classic old television shows. And I was exposed to all of this, to Al Jolson and Fanny Bryce and Eddie Cantor and Joan Davis and Lucille Ball and Bing Crosby and Humphrey Bogart and the Three Stooges every single day. So I just went, yeah, these are my people. Yeah, I'm going to do this. It was just there was no doubt this is where I needed to be. This is where I belonged. And here we are. I remember as a young girl watching I Love Lucy in reruns because it ran for six seasons, but it started in 1951. So, you know, I was not even born when, when it started, but I also recall seeing Lucille Ball in old movies, movies from probably the 40s. And I couldn't um, reconcile myself to this beautiful woman who played supporting roles in the 1940s with this unbelievable comedian of the 50s. They almost didn't seem like they were the same person. Have you seen a lot of her old movies from before television, Jeffrey? I've seen all of them. Uh, you know, the Lucy book that you're, and I'm so grateful for the, the wonderful words you're using to describe my work. But the new Lucy book is coming out next year. Ah. Where this book did television, that book will have all of what's in this book, plus new interviews with Carol Burnett and, and Rich Little and, and people like that. And I'm doing all of her films and all of the radio shows. So it'll be her whole career between two covers. Mm. People what don't remember book. or don't know that Miss Ball went to Hollywood and began to work in Hollywood in 1933. Oh so she had been a part of the Hollywood scene 18 years before I Love Lucy started. And she'd made 70 films before I Love Lucy started. So, of course, there were the screwball comedies and there were the parts where she was Lucy Ricardo-esque in that she did physical shtick. But then there were wonderful dramatic films and romance films and love films and musicals that she did that that weren't that part. Miss Ball, why she was so good on I Love Lucy is that Miss Ball was an incredible actor. Hmm. I'm curious to know, did she ever make a noir? Oh, sure. Several. Because I could see her, you know, and this is all pre 
I Love Lucy, but the public would have seen her in a certain way before that debut 70 years ago tonight as being a star, perhaps a major star, I guess we would say, in her. I mean, there were a lot of them out there. It was quite the pantheon, but she had her roles to play in that. And I thought, wow, could she be the bad girl in a noir and really sell that? Absolutely. I, I can't think of, I mean, she did Westerns. Every type of film you could make, she did at least one of those. By the time I Love Lucy came around, just, just like in the year or two preceding, she'd done a film with Bob Hope that was the biggest selling comedy Paramount had had up to that moment. She had a hit sitcom on radio called My Favorite Husband. It was in the top 10. She was making other films in other studios. She was everywhere. And she and Desi had done vaudeville together. They toured three or four uh, theaters in the United States doing a husband and wife act to prove to CBS that Desi Arnaz could indeed play her husband because CBS wanted no part of him. Because according to CBS, that would mean a mixed marriage and you Mm. cannot have a mixed marriage on television. So the Arnezes went out and proved, hey, the audience loves us. Get out of our way. Wow. Groundbreaking right there, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Did they start filming I Love Lucy from the very beginning in Hollywood? Oh, yes. I Love Lucy, if I can give you a little history. The reason I asked is that the apartment always looked like it was in New York. Because they had wonderful set decorators and people who had lived in New York and knew what they were talking about to a point. The Ricardo's apartment building, if we took it seriously, like it was in reality, first of all, it has an electric oven. No New York apartment had electric ovens back then. That was a West Coast thing. Mm. Uh, The back door and the back little, not an alley, but like a little, what would you call that? An access door that leads outside from the kitchen. That is very Hollywood. It is not New York at all. So uh, other than that, they, they, they went to great lengths to bring reality to the unreality of what they were doing with their humor. That helps us to accept it and to get rid of our disbelief that we buy into, for instance, that if one puts too much yeast into a bread mix and puts it in the oven, when one opens the oven, the loaf of bread will be three times longer than the <laughs> oven is deep. <laughs> now that cannot happen. Just, just it goes against the laws of science, but because the actors believed in it so much, we, the audience could believe in it too. But Lucille Ball had this hit series, my favorite husband, CBS mm-hmm. starting in 1949, began to bring their radio shows to television and they wanted to bring intact my favorite husband to cbs television and miss ball said i'll only do it if desi can play my husband because they hardly saw each other desi was touring the country with his big band lucille was making films and doing radio she was hollywood bound he was everywhere else and they figured if they could do the tv show together they'd see each other they'd have a chance at having a happier life And CBS said no. So they went on that vaudeville tour and then they shot a live pilot, something to show you what the show would look like. It it did not have those sets 
Fred and Ethel weren't even characters in that, but it showed enough that the Philip Morris Cigarette Company <coughs> uh, bought the show and they put it on Monday nights, nine o'clock, starting on October 15th, 1951. At that time, Jeffrey, somebody fed me a few fun facts here. At that time, at the point of their debut, there were 10 million TV sets in American households. A year later, it is estimated, there were 20 million. And my inference based on those two facts is that I Love Lucy was a a real driver to such an extent that perhaps it was the first or among the first programs to be considered appointment television. Absolutely. There really was only one other show like that at that time. That was the uh, Milton Berle show, the Texaco Star Theater. So Tuesday night you had Milton, Monday night you had Lucy. And that's why everybody began buying television sets because if you didn't see the show, you couldn't talk about it the next day and you weren't cool. So you, you brought up good statistics. Yeah, there were about 10 million sets in use in September of 51. By the time wonderful Mary Wicks plays Madame Lamond trying to teach Lucille Ball uh, how to be a ballet dancer, 10 million people were watching I Love Lucy. It was the first show that got that many people to watch it at one time. By the time she had the baby, almost a year later, 40 million people were watching I Love Lucy. So yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was the other thing that was hugely groundbreaking was for her to be a pregnant woman on television because that was one of the other no-nos back then is that you didn't have pregnant women on TV you and, couldn't uh, have, you couldn't have yeah. pregnant women on TV because the the word itself insinuates that somebody had sex. Right. You couldn't insinuate that any human being was having sex. Right. Storks brought all the babies. Yep. It, it is why in films back then men and women had to sleep in twin beds unless the woman was a whore. If she was a slut, if she was loose, she could be seen in a regular bed with a man but it meant that she was a no good Nick and uh, a, mm. a woman of no character. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the Arnezes, the first season of I Love Lucy, and, and people have described this in various ways, but here's the truth. They slept in what's called a California King, which is basically two single beds pushed to, together. So it made for one great big king size bed. And they did that until the episode where Lucy tells him she's having a baby then vavum the two beds come apart and thereafter they sleep in single beds as did everybody else on television until the stevens is on bewitched darren and samantha unlike everybody else claims on their shows no darren and samantha were the first couple except for one there was one exception and that was ozzy and harriet because they were a married couple playing a married couple and they were middle-aged and their sons were teenagers and young adults. I guess people thought at that age, they weren't going to have sex. We don't have to worry about it. So they slept in a bed together. (laughs) Very good. That's a bit of trivia. That's just fun. You know, (laughs) 
<laughs> I would think if Philip Morris would have been okay with them being in one bed and they don't mind the slutty part as long as both of the partners are smoking, smoking in afterwards. the dark. <laughs> you're, 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 you're adjusting, but let me tell you, Philip Morris didn't want the pregnancy shows. CBS didn't want the pregnancy show pregnancy shows. The pregnancy shows to show her pregnant. The idea was just Oppenheimer's. Jess doesn't get enough credit. I hope Greg Oppenheimer is watching this. He's a good friend. Jess was the creator of I Love Lucy. He was the head writer of her radio show and the head writer and producer of I Love Lucy. And when the Arnezes came to him and said, uh, we're going to have another baby, because they had Lucy Arnez July 17th of 51. And they had to go right into rehearsals for I Love Lucy. And oh, wow. another baby is coming now. Wow. What are we going to do? Are we going to hide her behind big chairs? Are we going to put her in pillows? Are we going to shoot her only in close-ups? And, 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 and they said, no, this will give us all kinds of new story angles. And they really had planned to build most of the second season around that baby. And nobody wanted it. So they had to bring in a priest a minister and a rabbi had to vet every script, every word, every usage. Oh my gosh. And the clergy people said, what is the big fuss? This is act of God. This is nature. This is natural. You know, this is not filthy for a husband and wife to have a child, except they could not use the word pregnant. She hmm. was expecting. She ah. was infanticipating. She's a mother to be. Yep. Yeah, but mother never baby. ever pregnant because that means that yeah his genitalia touched her genitalia and we can't have that on television right now they show you how to do it on television i i remember mother to be being a very common phraseology back then yes that always mother referring to, to a blessed event yeah, right right <laughs> at some point now jeffrey when they're putting together the cast, somebody, and to this day, I don't know who, so here's a chance to educate me and a lot of other people, who decided that if you're going to have them close friends with, I believe it was the landlords, the Mertzes, there, if you're going to have this couple, how do we cast these people? Who would we be looking for? I know we've got this looker named Vivian Vance, who had been a star mm. of some note in her Not own. Not at Oh, they had to be going for Vivian Vance saying that's who we want. Absolutely. Now, isn't that the truth, Jeffrey? Absolutely not. Pack of lies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What's the truth? Jeffrey? Who's ever been feeding you is feeding you tainted food here. That's why they're not being interviewed here today. <laughs> the truth is they wanted to bring the entire My Favorite Husband cast to the television show. Fred and Ethel were a prototype of another couple already on her radio show, Mr. and Mrs. Atterbury, who were her husband's boss and his wife, mm. played by, drumroll please, Gail Gordon and B. Benaderet. Oh, oh my wow. gosh. So they wanted Fred, Fred Mertz to be played by Gail Gordon. They wanted B to play uh, Ethel, but they couldn't because the budgets for I Love Lucy were tiny. The people who eventually played those parts got paid a whopping $250 a week that first season. Wow. Because the budget was so small. Gail Gordon was on every radio show. I mean, you turned your radio on and he was on every, he was on in the morning waking you up. He was on at night closing you down. 
and every soap opera, sitcom, dramatic show, variety show, the man was making a fortune in radio. Why would he give all that up for two fifty a week to do I Love Lucy, which was a very difficult show to film? Very, very hard work. So Gail took himself out of it. B was already doing every other week live from Hollywood, the George Burns and Gracie Allen show as Blanche Morton. So she couldn't do it. There was no time in her schedule for her to do two sitcoms like that. So they, they had to recast. They considered all kinds of middle-aged and elderly character actors for Fred Mertz. Bill Frawley, who knew the Arnezes, called Desi and said, can we have lunch? And they went to a place called Nicodell's in Hollywood. And they, you know, the, the two of them had a couple of drinks and lunch. And Bill Frawley said, what is it? What do those other guys have that I haven't got? And Desi said, it isn't what they've got that you haven't got. It's what you do that they don't do, which was he was an alcoholic. Mm. And they were terrified that they would put him in the show. It would, it would harm them. So Desi, with Jess Oppenheimer's approval, made a deal with Bill Frawley. The first time he'd come in drunk, he'd be written out of the episode. The second time he came in drunk, he'd be blackballed in Hollywood. And Bill said, I accept that. Here's my deal. Anytime the Yankees were going to be in the World Series, Desi had to fly him wherever it was, first class, put him up first class, and get him tickets. And of course, the Yankees were in the World Series every season I Love Lucy was on. Bill Frawley never showed up drunk. Desi spent a lot of money on Yankees tickets. So that's how <laughs> Bill That's how Bill came into the show. Wow. Little Lucy was born Little Lucy, 70 years old now. Lucy had been born. They were putting things together, and they had no Vivian Vance. They considered Mary Wicks because Mary Wicks and Lucille had become good buddies from doing live television together and just being in Hollywood together. They both loved their mothers fiercely, and that kind of bonded them together. But Mary said, Lucille is, she doesn't have fun when she works. It's all work, work, work. I don't want to work like that. I'd rather have her as a friend. And, and Mary Wicks was doing big motion pictures and making a ton of money again. Why give all of that up for two fifty a week? And Mark Daniels, who was the first season director of I Love Lucy, knew that Vivian Vance was appearing in La Jolla, right out of San Diego, in a play. Vivian had gotten started even earlier than Lucille in New York, doing Broadway and doing nightclubs. She'd been Ethel Merman's understudy in two musicals by Cole Porter. She had become a star of her own by the early 40s, and then Miss Vance had a nervous breakdown. And she was just coming back to work doing a road company of a play she'd done on Broadway, The Voice of the Turtle. And Desi and Jess, and I believe Mark Daniels, because they each tell the story differently. Let's assume all three of them were there, saw her, and Desi hired her during intermission. They, hmm. She never got to meet Lucille. She never got to, aud to audition properly. She was just there. Now, now, here's an interesting story, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to speed it up a little bit, but I don't want to leave out the good, juicy stuff. So now we have the first day of rehearsal for I Love Lucy, which was back in September. because They needed four or five weeks for editing and sweetening and music and all that kind of stuff. Bill Frawley is there first. He wants to make sure he shows he's solid as a rock. 
And one by one, the people come in. Everyone was there at this point except Miss Ball because she was the star. She was going to make an entrance. And Vivian comes in and Desi goes to kiss her. And Bill is sitting there. And Vivian says to Desi, hey, who's that old coot over there? What's he playing? And Desi says, he's going to play your husband. And she said, husband? He could play my grandfather. Well, Bill heard that. Mm. And for the rest of his life, hated her guts and never, ever, ever forgave her for that. So the writers saw that these two actors were not getting along and wrote their distaste for one another into the scripts. Hmm. Saw what their, their, their strengths were. When they were hired, the original writers had no idea that both of them could sing and dance, that both of them had been in vaudeville and on Broadway, and they began to write the musical numbers and all that kind of stuff into it. It's why the, the merchants eventually were known as ex-vaudevillians, because it gave uh, them a reason to perform. Yeah. Mm. That's laid out so beautifully. You know, that's, that is terrific stuff. I remember talking to, and this was an interview that Susanna and I did with uh, both the Livingston brothers years ago. Yes. It'd be fun to have them back sometime. I know and where you're going. Have, uh, yes, yes. And and uh, I believe it was Barry, uh, Ernie Douglas, more popularly known back in the day. He was urged, egged on by William Frawley, the story goes, to throw something. It might have been a ball of some kind. No, let, me just, tell, let, let me tell the story. Okay, I'm messing it up. So we got to get it from the authority. So in the 1960s, Bill Frawley had left the I Love Lucy company. Uh, when the Arnezes got divorced in 1960, that was the end of I Love Lucy. Six seasons of half-hour shows, three seasons of hour-long shows, and a couple of appearances by the Arnezes on other shows playing Lucy and Ricky. And immediately jumped ship and joined my three sons. Uh, Barry had not yet joined the show. Stanley was the youngest son. Barry joined the show a few years later, but, but Bill Frawley played Bub, the grandfather, a part I can now relate to. And my three sons, without a live audience, shot in the soundstage next to where the Lucy show in 1962 began to shoot. And Bill would get the boys, sometimes just Barry, he would wait to, for a rehearsal. He, he would never interrupt an actual shoot. He knew better than that. I mean, you don't do that. I don't care how much you dislike somebody. But during rehearsals was a different subject. And they'd gather up in their hands what would make the most noise. Usually it was empty uh, film cans, 32 millimeter film cans. And they would tiptoe to the next sound stage. And just when Vivian would be saying a line or asking a question or rehearsing something, clang, 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 bang, 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 and then they'd run like hell. The boys thought it was hysterical, but Bill was still getting back at her for the one sentence she said in September of 1951. And I thank you for telling that story. You actually have enhanced the story as I heard it not embellished, but enhanced the story in a way that we didn't get from Barry Livingston himself. So this is terrific stuff. That's well, why I got, you're I got, it, I got it from Barry. I mean, Bar Barry and Stanley are friends of mine. Uh, they're wonderful. Ta and Barry, 
I, I know we're going off a of field here a little bit, but but he's like the Renaissance man of a 21st century. Mm-hmm. He's the kind of character actor now that there were actors like that in the golden age of Hollywood who constantly worked, maybe never got their name over the title, but they were in these magnificent films and television shows. And Barry just keeps working and working and working and working. Stanley lives out here in the desert near me. And uh, both of them very generously contributed to the Lucy book. And I continue to spend time with them. They're wonderful gentlemen. I got a chance to converse with them both privately and I have great respect for them. They just, they grew up in that medium and they, they were shown the ropes by some of the best in the industry by these grizzled old veterans who were quite talented, not the least of which was William Frawley, who was, he told one time, he told Stanley that uh, when they were going to do this little promo bit for Chevrolet, Actually, at a very young age, Stanley Livingston wanted to know he would be getting what he would be getting paid for doing that. And he was abruptly informed by Mr. Frawley that you don't get paid anything, kid. When they tell you to do it, you just do it. Because it's all part of the biz. And they got paid. And before we go to break, I do want to just uh, wrap up this part of it with a question that I've had for many years, Jeffrey. And that is, was there not human communications having evolved to a certain point there. And there are many ways of approaching it today since I understand. But back then, isn't it too bad that William Frawley or Vivian Vance or Desi or somebody, maybe Jess Oppenheimer, may have had the opportunity to say, now look, we've got gold in our hands here. Don't screw this up. So if there's a problem and the age differential, the old coots up, let's get that on the table and understand it all in context and go back to work and make this wonderful thing happen every week. Well, I can give you a long answer and I can give you a short answer. I'll give you a medium answer because we have a time constraint. They did that. But Mm. keep in mind, no one exactly knew what they were doing. They were inventing this day by day as they went along. Jess was the producer, but it was Desi and Lucille's money, but there was a sponsor. These are the days where sponsors controlled the time period. Philip Morris bought Monday night, 9 to 9.30, and they could put on any show they wanted. They wanted I Love Lucy, but William Paley, who is the head of CBS, also has a voice in what is said, how it works. So they had to be careful not to have too much contention. And they tried to keep people's problems private, both from the sponsor, from the network, and also from the press. Because if it had gotten out back then that Bill and Vivian did not get along, it would have affected how much the audience would embrace the Mertzes and therefore how they would embrace the Ricardos. So Jess often got involved. Desi often got involved. Bill and Vivian, it, it wasn't like they couldn't talk to each other. There was just no love lost, but they were both incredible professionals who came in and did their jobs. I mean, Vivian used to joke, and, and I believe this is a true thing, that they were, they, had, they, were, they had just finished shooting a show and were like toweling off afterwards. And Bill comes into her dressing room and says, Vivian, I got this script in my hand. What is this? Is this the next show we're doing? And she looked at him and said, Bill, that's the show we just shot 20 minutes ago. 
because Bill Frawley wouldn't read the whole script. He would read just his lines. And sometimes when you see him laughing on camera, it's because he's surprised by the joke as much as we are. Hmm. They, That's they, they, great. Yeah, I love they, that. They couldn't allow their antipathy yeah. to hurt their paychecks. Because believe me, it may have been 250 that first season. By the sixth season, it was in the thousands. So they, they didn't want to disrupt that. And they didn't want to get, um, you know, and show business is a very small town. And what part of show business you're in. And rumors get circulated. And if people think that you're hard to work with, you don't get work. Um, they had to protect themselves. So, yes, people did interfere. And, yes, they did try to keep it hush-hush as much as possible. These stories only came out with my book. People didn't know them before this. And I think in my book, I don't take anyone to task. I tell it how it was without judgment. Uh, but if I can explain something so that you understand why it was this way, then we have better information. All right, let's go ahead and take our break. We're running a few minutes late. We are talking with Jeffrey Mark. As Gary says, whatever he doesn't know isn't worth knowing. And as he says, it's probably not true anyway. It didn't happen anyway, unless yeah. he puts his imprimatur on it. That's we right. will be back in a few minutes. And thank you for staying tuned to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk AM 1150. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp. 
That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. We are having a lot of fun this hour with Jeffrey Mark, who wrote the definitive book about Lucy, and it's out of print. It's completely sold out, but he is redoing it next year. And so be watching for that in 2022. Jeffrey Mark, please let our listeners know how they can connect with you, anything about your website, your podcast, anything you'd like to share so that we can draw people to what it is that you do. And now it's time for Plugorama. Here we go. <laughs> uh, well, for those of you out there who know me not from Lucille Ball, but from Ella Fitzgerald, I have a podcast, Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella. Every week we play her music on a theme and I tell you what's interesting and what happened backstage and what was going on while it was being recorded and why it's important or why it's not important. That's on Apple tunes, iTunes, every, the usual platforms you can find it. And there's a backlog of shows. Help yourself. I am guest hosting on main street the whole month of October, uh, filling in for my buddy, Gary Allen, who's having some ouchies. And while he's getting himself healed, my guest in about two hours will be the wonderful, huge star, Ruta Lee. We'll be talking about her life and Lucy and her book and all that kind of jazz. Uh, if you want to talk to me directly, I'm on Facebook, Jeffrey Mark. I am on Instagram, uh, The Jeffrey Mark. I'm on Twitter. You can find me almost any place and I answer everybody. And I just wanted to make a note here that Jeffrey is G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. That is the spelling of Jeffrey for Jeffrey Mark. So glad to have you with us. Mark has a K, not a C. And Mark is a K. And it's not Mark's. I did it with Greg Marks a couple of weeks ago, who was Gummo Marks' grandson. And someone asked if he and I were related. He said, no, Mark, Marks, different, different names. There you go. Jeffrey Mart, who is the go-to guy. We love to have you with us to uh, straighten out my mistelling of stories and to provide fresh information every single time you join us. And we must do this more often, Jeffrey. I wanted to, um, let me just tell you how it goes very briefly with Suzanne and I at night, because we we are firmly ensconced and I would say comfortably so in the category of fuddy-duddies, where we watch our television shows. 10 o'clock at night here in Sarasota, we go to Schitt's Creek and we enjoy that. They run back-to-back episodes. And then afterward, for a long while... And much to my consternation, it's no longer the case, but we would watch a couple of episodes of Two Broke Girls. So I would have this fun couple of hours. Now with Two Broke Girls being replaced by something else I didn't want to watch, I go, okay, I'll go to the other channel and I'll watch The King of Queens. All of that habituated TV viewing has its roots from what I understand. And here I'm going to you as the expert, Jeffrey. There has its roots. This, this is we're shaping behavior now of TV viewership all over the country. Desi Arnaz had the bright idea that if you gave a film quality, quality prints of I Love Lucy, they would stand the test of time and that people would be happy to re-watch those episodes. That so is, is a del- that's a delightful story. I so wish it was true because it sounds so good. It's just not the truth. Did Desi Arnaz have any role to play in the formation of a syndication environment? 
Yes and no. Yes, because tangentially that's what happened, but that was not the thinking that got it started. Again, September of 1951, Lucy Arnaz has been born. They're beginning to put the show together. And a hundred people, a hundred of the most talented people in Hollywood joined this thing. It was an amazing, they're all working for scale for minimum wages, but they wanted to make this thing excellent because Philip Morris called and said, when are you and Lucille moving to New York? And he said, what do you mean moving to New York? He said, well, to do the show live. He said, why can't we do a show live from Hollywood? They said, because there are more cigarette smokers east of the Mississippi River. And if you do it in L.A., you have to put it on a kinescope, which is a film taken off of a television monitor. Because there was no coast-to-coast television. They didn't have the technology for one show to be seen everywhere. There Mm. was no videotape. They couldn't record it and make it look live. So you must come to New York. And Desi said, well, how about if we, you know, film it out here? And Philip Morris said, we've seen how Miss Ball works. We've seen how you work in a nightclub. You guys are dead without an audience for comedy. You need to be in front of the audience. That's what we bought, that live pilot with you guys in front of a live audience. So then Desi said, okay, what if we filmed the show in front of a live audience. Can we stay in Hollywood and do that? And they said, sure. Well, what a wonderful sense. Now he, he and 99 other people had to figure out how the hell do you do that? Because nobody had ever done it before. And it involved retrofitting a soundstage, putting in bathrooms, finding flooring where the, the, the microphones wouldn't pick up, the cameras moving around. It needed special lighting. So they got Carl Freund, Academy Award-winning cinematographer to be the director of photography. Mark Daniels was a huge director in New York. It's just everywhere along the line. You, you know that I'm very connected to the Hollywood Museum, which was in the beginning, the Max Factor building. Max Factor personally sends out Hal King to do everybody's makeup so they, they look the best they can look. So everything had to be invented from scratch, but it wasn't like they sat back and went, hmm, if we do it this way, we'll go into syndication. There was no syndication. There was nothing like that. But because they had the films, and we'll tumble into the second season again, they realized with Miss Ball's pregnancy, they couldn't film enough episodes to fill the schedule before she had the baby. And then she'd need like a month off after the baby to lose weight and get her strength back. And they said, what if we film new openings for old shows and broadcast them as flashbacks? And that's how the I Love Lucy rerun was born. And then once Mm. they realized that us folks at home would stand for that, then other shows began to do the same kind of thing. And then in those days in television, almost everyone did 39 episodes a year. And then over the summer for 13 weeks, a different sh- a summer replacement show would be on. But eventually what happened is because the Arnezes and Jess Hoppenheimer invented the rerun, they were able to rerun shows all summer and everyone got paid twice and the cast liked it better and the crew liked it better. And all because Desi Arnaz was challenged 
we need you live in front of an audience on film. And he said, okay, we'll make that happen. I like my story Very better, good. but your story looks good on paper. And I think it's easy for people, because I actually heard this as part of an interview on national television originally many years ago. It seems, though, looking back with, with that retro view, look at the influence he had. Well, sometimes our influence is felt later because of the necessities of the moment. Desi Arnaz, I think, is one of the most misunderstood persons in show business history. Why? Be because they either go one extreme or the other. Either he was this good-looking but talentless hack who hitched his wagon to Lucille Ball and lived off of her, or he was this genius who invented I Love Lucy and invented every single thing about I Love Lucy and controlled everything and everybody. And, and neither one is true. He was a very talented person. He had a hard, hard teenagerhood coming from wealthy, wealthy people in Cuba who were running the island practically and had a revolution where they had to leave the island and come to the United States with nothing. Yeah. And from nothing, he got himself a little band, a little group, and then Xavier Cugat found him and put him in his act. And then Cugat helped him to start his own band. And then he was pairing in New York and Rogers and Hart saw him in New York and put him in a musical on Broadway. And it became a huge hit and made him a big star in New York. That got made into a musical film. On that film, he met Lucille Ball. Uh, so it all fits together in pieces. Mm -hmm. He was amazingly handsome. He had the kind of sex appeal we would put together with Elvis Presley or Tom Jones. In fact, Elvis and Tom Jones, the hip jiggling, the, the, the crotch thrusting, that was Desi Arnaz playing the conga drum. He did it first. They mm -hmm. stole from him. So he was this very intelligent, undereducated, talented, sexy, very ambitious man who loved his work and loved his wife and loved his children. And that kind of stuff isn't said enough about him. And they met on a movie set, which is interesting. A lot of couples the meet girl, on movie sets. The girl who played Miss Ball's part didn't go to Hollywood. For whatever reason, most of the Broadway cast came she did not. And Lucille Ball, the film was made at RKO, was an RKO contract player, and they put her into the film. And that's mm -hmm. how they met. That was meant to be. It, it makes me almost go metaphysical. Yeah. I mean, so all these pieces that came together yeah. in so many ways with the great show business stories, Paul McCartney saying that if there were certain people at certain times and things falling into place, if those things hadn't happened, there wouldn't have been the Beatles. And it's wonderful for all of us that these there, things actually occur. There's a wonderful Yiddish word, beshert. Beshert equals meant to be. Uh, I, I think Miss Ball and Mr. Arnez is a couple. I Love Lucy is a show. It was beshert because nobody could have planned it that way. It just, it happened because 9 million things lined up properly. Yep. Yeah. The stars all in alignment. Yeah. I love this. I just love this. I get chills. Uh, Jeffrey, I want to ask you about pretty serious matter if we're going back to the 1950s. Yes, sir. How much trouble, I'm just putting the matter loosely, in how much trouble was Lucille Ball during the time of Hollywood blacklisting? There are some people who wonder to this day, was she really a commie? 
Well, let, let's let's straighten that out pretty quickly. Uh, Miss Ball never really knew her father. So the father figure in her life was her grandfather, Fred Hunt, the father of her mother, Dee Dee. And he was, I don't know if he was a communist. He was certainly a socialist. And to be a socialist or a communist in the 1930s during the Depression was not a big deal. People were looking for political solutions to vast poverty and starvation. So to please her grandfather, I think it was in 1936, the 32, 33, yeah, 36, she registered to vote as a communist, like you'd register to vote as a Democrat or a Republican. There used to be more political parties in this country. You had several choices. Well, nobody thought much of it. That's not how she voted. No one cared anymore. Grandpa Fred died. But the witch hunts were on. So they called in Miss Ball because they knew the story. They knew where her loyalties were. They knew how hard she worked during World War II for, to help everybody to raise money, charity work she did. So privately, the House Un-American Activities Committee brought her in under closed doors. She told her story. They were satisfied. She was vindicated. It was all done already. But sometimes columnists and radio personalities need to fling mud to get ratings. And, uh, and I'm having a senior moment here trying to remember the name of the Walter Winchell put a blind item, I believe on a weekend column, what famous redheaded star is a commie. Mm. And everyone went into overdrive. What do we do about this? Well, they rehearsed their show. It's the one where Lucy and Ethel buy a dress shop. And Desi introduces her because Desi always did the warm up for the show and said, here she is, my wife, the mother of my children, my favorite redhead. And even that is not legitimate. Lucille Ball, they did the show. She collapsed. And the next day, Winchell vindicates her as if he's the one who did it. It had already been done. All of this was just publicity for Walter Winchell. Uh, I believe Miss Ball was one of the very few people who not only did it not hurt her, but it got the country sympathetic towards her and maybe have turned the tide a little bit on, wait a minute, if she's not really a commie, who else have we pointed fingers at who's also not? So th that's the story. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's important to know, to straighten that out. We just have a few minutes left, so I know I, thought it, I could go on for another hour about Lucille Ball. There will be other hours, and you can wax as much as you want to. We love listening to you. You just you're so authoritative and entertaining at the same time. Not always easy to do, but you pull it off. Yeah, next time did, I'll sing. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. We'll be on the radio, but you can dance too if you want. Your choice. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Lucille Ball, the businesswoman. When she has control of Desi Lu, I mean, I'm thinking of shows like Star Trek, Mission Impossible, two wonderful Mannix. Yeah. Mannix. It goes on and on. Was she during a certain time the one who had to sign off on something like Star Trek? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. What a great decision. Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball had it in their paperwork that should at any time something happen between them. 
or that one of them wanted to retire, the other one would buy the, one would buy the other one out. Uh, Miss Ball bought out Mr. Arnaz. She became the president of Desi Lu from early 1963 until 1967. The reason she came back to the, the Lucy show was because Desi Lu had very few shows on anymore. The studio was pretty much just renting out space to other production companies. And they felt that maybe the day of the sitcom was over. So the men she hired, plural men, to replace Desi's job said, let's do dramas. Let's do, let's do other types of things. And Miss Ball not only gave the money to make the first Star Trek pilot, she put in money for a second one, which is how Bill Shatner got involved, and Mannix, and Mission Impossible. And if Miss Ball had not sold the studio in 1967 for $8 million, today the Arnazes would be billionaires. So don't say the word Star Trek to Lucy Arnaz. Ah, okay. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> well, we have a couple of minutes to go here Two in minutes. terms of your projects, which you have going forward, the Hollywood Museum. I've done a, uh, a another show. I did an interview with the lady who has uh, been the brainchild of that. You're very closely associated with that museum. Over 11,000 artifacts. There's got to be some Lucy stuff in there, Jeffrey. Well, yes, there, there's a lot of Lucy stuff in there. There's also things of mine that are in there. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit on exhibit there myself, things I've donated, and a copy of my book is there. Um, we're doing this coming Wednesday, the 20th, we're having a Halloween, early Halloween party in the basement because they have all these wonderful sets from scary movies. And I'm going as Elton John, which is not a huge leap, but um, <laughs> it just means another layer of sparkles on top of what I already wear. So we got that going on. And uh, Amber Lynn and I are working on her memoirs. My autobiography is already written, waiting for the Lucy book to come out next year before that one comes out. Uh, people are talking to me about doing a podcast, a video podcast. Uh, and I'll, I want to do some comedy. So I've got lots and lots of stuff happening. And what we'll see, like show business, what sticks, because you're going to have 17 things in the planning. And if one of them works out, hip, hip, hooray. Jeffrey, thank you for being with us today. We look forward to the next time and the next conversation and whatever that topic is going to be. So thank you for giving us your time today. My extreme pleasure, both of uh, you and Ben. All right. Stay tuned for the Christine Upchurch show, followed by uh, later on American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. And we're going to be talking about I Love Lucy. Okay. And with the Lucy somebody Desi else? Museum. Yes. <laughs> Another voice shall be heard from. No, no. <laughs> and join yeah. us tomorrow. Thanks so much, everyone. Make this the start of a great weekend.